afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Writers' Festival Radio and to the final podcast of our Republic of Childhood fall season, Breathing Life into Art and Art into Life with Stephen McManavich. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. My name is Aidan Wilson, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm a student at Lisker Collegiate in Ottawa, and I'm a co-founder of the Republic of Childhood. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a charitable donation to support our virtual programming. We also want to thank Carleton University, the Ottawa Community Foundation, and the TELUS Friendly Future Foundation for supporting our virtual Republic programming. Thank you all for tuning in as we reinvented ourselves as an online festival. We missed being with you in person, but hopefully if we all follow the science and practice patience and common sense, we will be able to gather again in person soon. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you with what you thought of our fall season and what we might do to improve things. Please go to our website, republicofchildhood.ca, and leave us a note. We will get back to you. And now, here is the conversation between Neil Wilson and Stephen Nakmanovich. On the face of it, improvisation and learning have as much in common as free verse and haiku poetry or writing following the rules of grammar versus randomly choosing letters. And yet, as we will discover in our conversation with Stephen Nakmanovich, improvisation offers us insights into communication that just might open new doors to discovery and enchantment that could enrich our lives and lead to a deeper and fuller appreciation of what it means to connect with people and our environment. Dr. Stephen Nakmanovich is a musician, teacher, and author of the classic work, Free Play. He performs and teaches internationally at the intersection of multimedia, performing arts, ecology, and philosophy. This is what acclaimed cellist Yo-Yo Ma has to say about Stephen's latest book, The Art of Is which came out a few months ago. The Art of Is is a philosophical meditation on living, living fully, living in the present. To the author, an improvisation is a co-creation that arises out of listening and mutual attentiveness, out of a universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. It is a -a once-in-a-lifetime encounter, unprecedented, and unrepeatable. Drawing from the wisdom of ages, the art of is not only gives the reader an inside view of the state of mind that gives rise to improvisation, it is also a celebration of the power of the human spirit which, when exercised with love, immense patience, and discipline, is an antidote to hate. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Nakmanovich. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, for for quite a while. This book is um, is to me something that I'm going to be carrying as a handbook uh, for the rest of my days. Um, now, Stephen, when I think of improvisation, I think of musicians like Keith Jarrett and 
the late John Coltrane or painters like Picasso and perhaps writers like James Joyce who were acknowledged as masters of their instruments and who had the luxury of, of throwing away the rules, if you will, and inventing something entirely new. Clearly, very few of us will ever attain the heights that these artists have. So how does improvisation apply to us mere mortals? Well, us mere mortals are having conversations all the time, every day. Even in the pandemic, we're talking to each other. And we don't write down what we're going to say before we say it. We've all got the capacity to create, to speak, to listen, to respond. You know, every time we have a conversation with a friend or a loved one, we're listening to them and responding. And that is improvising. And it's often improvising with a degree of subtlety that is um, hard to fathom and very artistic and very intimate. So those of mm -hmm. us who may also play musical instruments or have some other artistic chops, we're simply carrying that ordinary everyday activity into another set of languages. Mm. So, Stephen, how can um, it, how can improvisation play a role in the life of, of a child or children and youth who are just, say, beginning to discover their own voices and agency? And and then um, how can teachers, parents, and edu educators help in this process or, or play a role in this process? That's a, that's a great question, and it's very complex. I mean, first of all, we have to regard small children as our teachers of mm -hmm. improvising uh, because uh, they know how to do it more naturally and more easily than we do. <laughs> and when a two-year-old is banging on pots and pans and creating interesting sounds, that's the template, you know. When a baby... I mean, when I teach um, workshops, sometimes for very skilled musicians or actors or dancers or whatever they might be, uh, we always begin with gibberish, which to me doesn't mean um, talking nonsense. It means talking baby talk. It means being able to shape syllables spontaneously, which we all know how to do because we all have a background as babies. Now, when the babies become older children and are in school, there are all kinds of pressures to um, either conform to the uh, rules as they've been given to the kids or to rebel against the rules as they've been given to the kids. But either way, a certain structure has been given and um, you know, on the one hand, improvising or expressive freedom is uh, freeing yourself from the rules, but it's also great to know the rules so you know what you're freeing yourself from. Mm. You know, it's great to, uh, it's great for kids to read literature 
so they know how words are put together by a variety of interesting people from different cultures. It's great to know something about music, to know something about art and science. And uh, so the structures of education um, work for and against the creative process. Uh, nobody becomes, uh, you know, you mentioned some really awesome creative people uh, at the beginning of this question. Uh, no one becomes a mature creative person without having forgotten how to play and then remembered how to play and then forget and then remember and then forget and then remember. And that rhythm is an essential part of the creative process. So it sounds, Stephen, a little subversive, if you will, uh, on, because clearly um, you mentioned, you know, it's one of the most powerful moments in the book. Uh, you mentioned Al Wunder, uh, who wrote The Wonder of Improvisation, and he, 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 and you quote him and give the example that you just briefly touched on about, and we've all shared this experience of watching a, a one-year-old or a young child uh, taking his or her first steps and the the it's it's one of the most amazing and overwhelming experiences that we can ever experience it seems that because it's such a triumph for this little tyke to take those first steps and that young person may be all over the place and may you know fall a couple of times before they make it to the parents' uh, arms, uh, but we never criticize. We never uh, raise our voices. It, it's it's really a celebration. Exactly. So, and yet we, <clears throat> as we, you know, as as children uh, continue to take steps um, and and enter into daycare, and then kindergarten and the whole school system, it seems that that for many of us, that was the last time <laughs> in our <laughs> lives that we ever were celebrated unconditionally. Yeah, uh, it's really important um, to learn how to uh, appreciate what you're companions in life are doing. And that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a mistake. And it certainly doesn't mean that you pretend that, um, that a performance was perfect or can't be improved. But to learn to teach in such a way, I mean, again, you mentioned my friend, Al Wonder, he, he, um, provides a wonderful model in his own teaching of improvisational theater and dance artists, how to um, find the good in what someone is doing and allow that good to expand, you know, to find what is the interesting place in this piece, you know, maybe you felt it was out of tune, maybe you felt it was out of time, um, maybe you felt the person wasn't listening, 
but you can always find something interesting in what they're doing. And if you mention that and amplify that, that allows the person to look at the whole of what they're doing and allow it to evolve and change. You know, the child who uh, is walking for the first time at the age of one, um, it's not as though the child doesn't know that he or she fell down. You know, obviously they're falling down most of the time. <laughs> and um, and that's what we are. You know, um, Dogen, the great uh, 12th century Zen master, said that life is one continuous mistake. <laughs> and, you know, certainly for us as adults, I mean, I'm, a, you know, supposedly... Uh, trained adult <laughs> at the age of 70. But, uh, you know, I could, uh, if I wanted to um, slap myself in the face for the mistakes that I make, uh, I'd be doing that for half of every day of my life. But uh, to be aware of what you're doing, to have that degree of mindfulness and allow yourself to evolve that's what we can learn from the one-year-old who's beginning to walk. Now, Stephen, you've been, uh, I guess, a professional improviser for over 40 years. What is it? Uh, or was there a, a, a performance or, or a, a situation that, you know, clicked on that light or, or you know, opened your eyes or your ears to what would become one of your lifelong passions? How did you get involved in this? Well, um, I got involved in it in a very personal way. Uh, I was an academic in psychology and anthropology, and I was really interested in play. And some of the early works that I published were about play 50 years ago now. So I was certainly interested in playing and I was interested in baboons and babies and so on. Mm. Um, and I'd been trained as a violinist since I was a kid, but I always thought that was going to be a side thing. And I loved music as an amateur. Uh, and I thought I was going to be an academic. And then um, my mentor, Gregory Bateson, uh, as it were, figuratively sat me on his lap one day when I was in starting to study with him in grad school and opened the works of William Blake to me. Mm. And I'd seen Blake before, but uh, this really, uh, you know, his view of Blake really knocked my socks off. And Blake is, an, and I ended up uh, writing my dissertation on Blake's illustrations to the book of Job. Wow. And... Uh, Blake is an artist who talks about the creative process in such a way that you can't merely study it. You have to do it. Wow. And that's when I really began to practice the arts as practice, as a real practice. And then um, having had a lifelong love for music and having played violin, in orchestras and chamber music and so on, um, 
after I got my PhD, I spent a year in Switzerland as a high school English teacher. Mm. And uh, I happened to run across a Indian tabla player who lived in Geneva. And I ended up taking tabla lessons with him. Oh, wow. And I started learning the, uh, the undersides of Indian music, which is, of course, an ancient tradition of classical music that's based on improvisation, but also based on structures and forms of various kinds. But sort of like Western jazz, uh, the structures and forms provide a framework uh, around which you build improvisations in the moment. And that was really interesting to me. And Indian music has been a huge influence in my life. And then I had stopped playing the violin already, and I came back to the United States. And I uh, managed to damage my neck and um, had an injury for some time that, you know, that took a while to recover from. Uh, and I started uh, discovering all kinds of body work and chiropractors and other practices uh, uh, that uh, enabled me to uh, heal my injury. And I got the insane idea that I had to start playing the violin again, which was really insane because it's an instrument that you hold at neck level. And if I were to squeeze it or grab it or hold it in any way, it would be very painful. So I had to unlearn everything I'd been taught as a kid and learn out of my body from the inside out how to allow the violin to suspend itself in midair with very little muscle force and how to allow the bow to suspend itself in midair and I'd spent months and months learning how to play without really thinking about what I was playing. And I suddenly realized that what I was playing was uh, very interesting because it wasn't, it was, in quotes, it wasn't anything. That is, I, I no longer needed composers, much as I still love them. Uh, I didn't actually need them because I was improvising. And I happened to live in Berkeley, California, at a time among a community of uh, dancers, theater people, other performance artists um, who were um, living in this world of improvised art. And um, so that's how I started doing what I do. And I started giving concerts in dance spaces, um, sometimes with dancers, sometimes solo, sometimes with other musicians. Mm. And uh, so that was in the mid-1970s, and that, that began this journey. So I really discovered improvising pretty much on my own for myself, and I wasn't really aware. I mean, I thought I might be the only improvising violinist around, which, of course, I was not. There were lots of us, but we didn't necessarily know each other at the time. Uh, outside of the jazz tradition, there were, in fact, lots of improvising musicians who were classically trained or trained in other systems of music. 
And uh, at the time, uh, Yehudi Menuhin became a mentor of mine. And he is the person who urged me to write free play. And at the time, really nothing had been written about improvisation, not just in a single discipline, but across disciplines. And that became free play. Now, the world has really changed since then, and now there's a million things written about improvisation. There are educators across multiple fields who are teaching courses in it. Uh, young artists are uh, improvising in performance all the time. So the world has really shifted so that it's no longer something um, avant-garde or weird. It's the mainstream. Hmm. It seems... Um... Stephen, that <clears throat> improvisation is uh, at the root of of all creativity, perhaps, and it's it's something. I mean, you know, maybe the 18th century, you know, the scientific method, uh, when we as a species began to separate um, the body and the mind, or the physical world and the spiritual world and began to look at, um, you know, the soul or intuition as something that because it couldn't be measured and quantified, you know, we kept in the background, but um, certainly from your book and you quote, you know, Jung and Keats and, and they, and Blake, and, you know, for example, Keats, uh, you quote Keats as saying, he, he spoke about negative capability as the ability to remain within mysteries, capital M, uncertainties, capital U, and doubt, capital D, without the irritable reaching after fact and reason. So it, could I, am I hearing you correctly that part of the discipline of improvisation is based on listening uh, and allowing some process to happen that bypasses or doesn't allow our need for um, uh, facts and, and our rational faculties. Well, I'm really not terribly interested in the so-called division between our rational faculties, our emotional faculties, our imaginative faculties, and our body faculties, to list the four quadrants of Jung's system. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I really think that we are unitary beings and that, um, you know, if you're a free improviser, it's great to know a lot of facts. And it's great to know a lot of forms and structures and the mathematics of those forms and structures that people have used, you know. And if you are a composer of highly structured music, it's great to have the freedom to know that when you write a note down on a piece of paper, you are completely free. Because that freedom allows you to discover connections between that note and the next note and the next note and uh, discover new forms that may not have been used before or discover old forms that can be turned 
into something really interesting when you alter them a bit. Um, you know, the whole, um, the whole division in Western culture, I mean, it's different in Asian cultures, uh, in Chinese and Japanese, the, the same word shin refers to what we call mind and what we call heart. Mm. So there isn't that division. And uh, in Western cultures, of course, in, and in Western languages, uh, there is that division. And there have been kind of rhythms of um, rhythms in which those, uh, those divisions have seesawed back and forth. I mean, you, you mentioned the um, 18th century when uh, rationalism became a big deal in Western culture and Keats in the early 19th century when romanticism was a kind of rebellion against that rationalism. Um, but the rationalism was also a rebellion against something that came before. I mean, when, um, you know, the classic division between mind and body in Western culture is attributed to Descartes, um, who, um, sort of formalize the mind-body split. Um, but let's remember that Descartes lived in a time when the Inquisition was in the very recent past. And when um, artists, scientists, writers, people of all kinds uh, could be um, imprisoned, burned at the stake, all of those horrible things, tortured, um, if they're lucky, just exiled to house arrest like Galileo um, for uh, thinking outside of the church's box. Mm. And Descartes was really saying to the church, um, the soul and the spirit, they are your department, and we physicists and mathematicians are not uh, impinging on your territory that we are in this uh, theoretical mental territory of patterns and forms, and it has nothing to do with your world, so don't be threatened by us. That was some of the background to what Descartes was up to. Uh, but of course, then Descartes became sort of deified by the rationalist movement, and uh, the mind-body split was uh, part of our culture from then on. Um, when I was um, in my 20s, back in the 1970s, when I was discovering improvisation, it was a time when um, all kinds of thinkers, uh, certainly Gregory Bateson and other, a lot of other thinkers, were um, pointing out that Western culture had been heavily tilted towards the rational, the scientific, the mechanical, and that the territories of dream and myth and art were neglected and religion were neglected. And there were all kinds of things that came to be, uh, you know, some of them silly, some of them not silly, that came to be uh, under the rubric of the New Age as a... Uh, 
kind of straightening up of the ship, you might say, instead of tilting it towards ra rationality and reason, let's tilt the ship now over to dream and myth and archetype and so on. And uh, so that was a kind of interesting corrective. But none of us in the 1970s could have been predicting that now in the 21st century, we are refighting the Scopes monkey trial of, nine, of the 1920s, mm. that um, religion, uh, that fundamentalist forms of religion and uh, various uh, superstitious beliefs and the, um, the decline of belief in fact would become so extreme as they are now. And it now seems as though a little bit of scientific rationality seems awfully welcome, <laughs> you know. So, you know, the ship keeps like all cultural forms, that ship sort of overbalances to one side and then overbalances to the other side. And of course, what we want to be able to do as sane human beings is sail straight down the middle and have reason and imagination and form and freedom uh, balancing each other so that we can sit up straight and be complete human beings. So it's, it's almost like we need, uh, if you will, uh, to remind ourselves of Descartes, who, um, and thank you for clarifying, giving me some context, uh, of, of where Descartes was coming from, <clears throat> we need to think, which implies facts and rationality rather than just reacting. Um, and also we need some Dogen uh, and we need some uh, improvisation um, to, I, I guess, um, allow us to listen, to have confidence that by allowing some other opinion or some other um, point of view to touch me as a communicator, for example, we can make progress rather than what we see today, at least on the surface of world affairs, we have uh, this incredible opposition. It's like these forces um, that are, you know, threatening yeah. to tear down uh, much of what we call sane and sober and civilized uh, society. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I'm thinking of May Sarton, who says that sometimes it takes a hero to behave like an ordinary, decent human being. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I, um, I, I'm, I'm coming back again because this Republic of Childhood, as you know, we, we, my grandson and and wife and I, uh, you know took the Writers' Festival, which has been talking to, to people like yourself and, and you know, world-class thinkers and writers, 
and trying to find a way to um, distill or at least create a space for uh, younger people, children and youth to, um, to play, if you will. And this space, the Republic of Childhood, um, stems from my teaching background and work uh, in the classroom with the Writers' Festival. And I, I just, I do hope um, that your book and some of these ideas of improvisation and listening um, and, and the ability to fail. I know there's a lot of young people today who are stressed out, certainly in this time of COVID when schools are not safe places and communities are not safe places. This sense of <clears throat> getting it right and getting the marks and you know becoming somebody um, in that traditional way of looking at success, um, that uh, I don't know, we can we can find a way to just to relax and enjoy enjoy life and learning. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the interesting things for me uh, during the pandemic, uh, I. Um, like lots of people, like just about everyone, I've spent a lot of time on Zoom. And uh, I've been involved in classes in, uh, in various, uh, mostly in the arts, in universities around the world. And I've been finding that my colleagues who teach in those universities uh, are finding really, really interesting forms and methods of um, discovering what students can do in ways that we couldn't beforehand when we were freer. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the necessity, the constraint of working with each other inside these little rectangles on the screen has actually produced some really, really interesting results. And uh, as frustrating as it is to not be able to travel and and see people in person, um, and certainly as an improviser, the multidimensionality of the of human beings interacting in real space in real time, you know, it's hard to beat that. And yet, um, people are finding ways around it. And I'm finding that the students that I interact with are um, courageously doing all kinds of great creative stuff that might not, not otherwise have happened. Wow. Because the world is theirs to grab a hold of. You know, we, meaning us old people, uh, have not succeeded in creating the, um, the uh, blissful state of affairs that we might have imagined when we were in our 20s. Mm -hmm. Quite the contrary. And um, young people realize that they have to do it for themselves, and they are doing it for themselves. Well, we certainly have left the world, if you will, in, in a, a terrible state for these, yes. uh, our children and, and grandchildren. Yes, we have. So we hope that, um, that this exploration that you're, you're talking about uh, 
will allow them uh, to continue to challenge and question authority and, um, you know, blaze, uh, you know, new trails because in many ways um, we've lost the mystery and, uh, you know, uncertainty that comes with uh, what I understand from your book to be improvisation. Yes. To, just to, 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 to maybe end our, our conversation, Stephen, you, I wanted to uh, have you comment on something that uh, Gregory Bateson, uh, your dear mentor um, said, and he, I'm just, uh, I don't have the quote, here, but he, he talked about, and it's a quote from your book, the major problems of the world arise from the difference between the way people think and the way nature thinks. What, what did he mean by that? And what do you take away from that? Well, he said, you know, he, he was an explorer in um, anthropology, psychology, systems theory, ecology, so many fields, but his root was in biology. And he, and his root was in 19th century British biology, which was called natural history. And natural history is the art of paying attention to organisms in their environment and seeing the whole pattern. And he said, um, you know, he was very um, insistent that, let's say, a rat in a learning experiment has an epistemology. Uh, we think of epistemology as a fancy word for uh, the study of um, how, how do we know things and how do we know what we know and it's considered a branch of philosophy. Uh, but he points out that even a rat in a maze uh, has patterns of learning and patterns of knowing what is worth learning and what is not worth learning. Uh, in the one of the middle chapters of, of my book, I, I have a chapter called uh, All About Frogs. Mm -hmm citing a very famous experiment in the 1950s uh, where frogs are, um, it turns out that the uh, retinal cells of frogs, not even to the point where the signal reaches the brain, are uh, keyed into separating flies from not flies because <laughs> frogs need to catch flies. And so in a sense, there's an epistemology what is knowledge, what is worth knowing, what is signal, what is noise that's built into the retinal cells of frogs. And um, Bateson was very much aware of the interactive, intercommunicating nature of living systems. I'm sitting here in my studio in Virginia looking out over the forest out the window and, you know, a forest, a savanna, a tide pool, um, any natural system is made up of so many moving parts, so many kinds of minds, so many kinds of epistemology as the creatures filter uh, 
information and pass information on, including the trees in very interesting ways. Mm. So Bateson said, um, do please think in, a, in the way, do please try to think, meaning we can't really know if we're thinking that way, but we can try. Do please try to think in the way that the thing that you're thinking about thunk. Hmm. So that's an awkward sentence, but, yeah, you man. know, if you're going to study something, if you're going to learn about something, you need to recognize that nature does think, culture does think, cities think. And to learn something about the epistemology of that forest, of that city, of that branch of human culture is vital if we're going to think about it in a survivable way. It's, it's a, akin, perhaps, to part of your book uh, where you talk about the notion of getting rid of the nouns. Yeah. Where you, we, we learn to think or appreciate the interconnectedness, the wholeness, the, the, the oneness of everything rather than taking each thing uh, as a discrete entity. Exactly. I mean, I'm talking, you know, we know, I mean, I'm going to die, you're going to die. Uh, every um, cell in our body recycles at the very latest after seven years. Uh, so we're, we as human beings are in a constant state of flux. But I'm talking to you through a computer. And this computer has an aluminum body and glass parts and plastic parts and copper wire and so forth. And each of those, you know, the computer seems like an inert solid object. And yet um, the aluminum was mined somewhere. Mm. There were people who mined it. There were people who worked in the factories that assembled the aluminum frame and people who worked in another factory that assembled the whole computer. There were people, you know, so the labor relations is a story that's inside the computer. <laughs> uh, the, the labor relations, the biological, you know, the plastic keys on the keyboard uh, came from, um, you know, dinosaur era forests, you know, 200 million years ago as the petroleum that we burn does. Uh, so that's a long history. That's a long story. And the people who formulated the compounds of the plastic and the people in the fabric, fa uh, in the people who fabricated the plastic in factories, uh, their story is in the computer and so forth and so on. The people who wrote the programs for the operating system. So the computer is a dynamic center of just boiling activity that just seems in the moment to look like a solid object that I can slap on with my hand and that will cause pressure to my hand. So I think it's a thing. And of course, the computer will eventually become a pile of junk in the future. So uh, this is what in Buddhism they call 
emptiness of inherent existence, meaning that the computer is full of all kinds of stories and all kinds of patterns. The only thing it is empty of is an inherent separate existence all by itself as an object with a boundary around it. Stephen, uh, it's been a real, a real pleasure, uh, a great learning experience uh, to have had this opportunity to, to chat with you and share with our, our listeners uh, your must-read book, The Art of Is, and I encourage all of our listeners to uh, reach out to their local uh, community-owned independent bookstore and um, pick this, pick it up and um, read it because it is, um, well, you, you, you call it a way of life. And I also believe it could be a way of learning and relearning how to navigate this uh, beautiful uh, world that we inhabit together. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Stephen Nakamanovich. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is the festival's program director. Neil Wilson and Taya Yateman are my fellow co-founders of the Republic of Childhood, and I'm Aiden Wilson. On behalf of everyone at the Writers' Festival, thank you for joining us and stay safe.